0: but have amazing ideas and I firmly believe every coach in America has genius within them. It's not all about the state championships, it's about the impact you have on your kids and your community. So stay tuned to the Championship Vision Podcast. Coaches, welcome back again. I hope you're doing well, you're safe. And everything's going well with your family. Uh, Welcome back to the Championship Vision Podcast. Coach Kevin Furtado is here. Today we have episode 186 with Coach Lindsey Woolley. He's the head women's basketball coach at the University of Montana Western in Dillon, Montana. Lindsey Woolley became the head coach of Montana Western's women's basketball team in 2012. This past season, Wooly led the Bulldogs to the program's first NEI Division I National Championship. The title capped off a banner 2018-19 season for the Bulldogs, who finished with a 30-4 record and the Frontier Conference regular season crown. Woolley was named Frontier Conference Coach of the Year for the second time and NEI National Coach of the Year. Senior Bree King became the program's and the conference's first NEI and WBCA national player of the year. During Woolley's tenure with the Bulldogs, he has returned the program to national prominence after a 10-year absence from postseason play as his teams have made three straight NEIA appearances. Woolley has compiled a 135 and 88 career record and has coached six players who have become first, second, or honorable mention All-Americans, two Conference Players of the Years, several All-Conference selections, 18 Dactronic scholar-athletes, and numerous academic All-Conference selections. Coach Woolley spent the first eight years of his college coaching career at Miles Community College in Miles City, Montana, coaching men's and women's basketball. During his four-year run as the head coach of the MCC Women's Basketball Program, Woolley led his team to an overall record of 87-37 with a runner-up Mo- <clears throat> Mondak Conference, finished his first year, followed by back-to-back Mondak Conference championships. A Missoula, Montana native, Woolley played high school basketball at Big Sky High School and was a member of the 1997 Double-A Boys State Championship team. After graduating from high school in 1998, Woolley attended Montana Tech, playing both basketball and golf there before transferring to the University of Montana, where he earned a bachelor's degree in mathematics in 2004. Woolley earned a master's degree in human performance and physical education from Adams State University in 2012. Woolley is married to Megan Bundy of Miles City, Montana, and the couple are parents to five-year-old son, Avery. Hey, this is the first coach that uh, we went on. We interview coaches from all over the country, So, but this is the first coach from Montana. He was highly recommended uh, from one of my uh, previous podcasts, Coach Dave Strickland, out of Oregon. And uh, I'm so excited because um, he just runs a great program. After studying for quite a bit, he's really going to give insight how he has built Montana Western into one of the best uh NAIA programs in the country on that and I love getting insights into kind of the smaller NAIA uh, college programs because they're very similar things that we can do with our programs um, he, yes he is dealing with college athletes but man he's really built that program from the ground up and you're going to get some great insight into how you can apply his methods into your program so let's welcome Lindsay Woolley welcome
1: coach you there yes yeah yes sir how are you i'm doing
0: excellent how are you great great hey uh hey long distance call man this is awesome uh i'm cross country right <laughs> exactly on that so uh <laughs> hey welcome to the podcast i appreciate you taking the time out
1: absolutely looking forward to it it's uh it's fun to get a chance to talk a little hoops and 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 hopefully learn something
0: Oh, it's crazy right there. I mean, we're um, we're out here in Georgia, and we're uh, we just found out that I mean, we don't even know yet if we're going to play this season. Uh, I'm hoping we can, but um, they're allowing us to work with our players, which is good. But we can't scrimmage or anything like that. So it's I know it's crazy. How is it in Montana?
1: It's you know we're um, you know we're fortunate to live in a in a super rural area where we don't have a ton of cases, but we you know we have some just like everybody else and our governor ask requirement for indoor indoor spaces uh yesterday afternoon and and we've been fortunate enough that our institution allowed our kids to get into the gym in the, eh, about the middle of june um and so they've been in and they've been able to work out in groups of less than 10 and so that's been that's been good for them i didn't have a lot of kids here this year uh we were an extremely young team last year and so most of our freshmen all went home as soon as the kind of the pandemic hit. And, so sure. our so, our kids have you know they've been able to get in the gym and get shots up, which is you know the, the most important thing for us and the weird thing is the n a i is not allowing us to work with our players, which they usually do in the summer, so they said oh, man. yeah, no organized stuff um until august fifteenth so it's it's kind of unique though for us we have a we have a young new men's coach who who likes to go in and try out all his shooting drills on on our kids, so he's been kind of working out my girls, and so that's that's worked out pretty well for them
0: absolutely i guess now it's a sign of creativity right because it's different and i know um with our kids hey it's like it's funny with with kids it's like hey this is a new concept actually going to your backyard and practicing that's a new concept right and
1: there's there's no (laughs) question about it you know now we you know we live in an eight most kids uh, you know had whether they had a personal trainer or they at least had a gym membership those types of things um they've They've had to kind of go back old school, and it's interesting. I remember recruiting some kids in Oregon, you know, in the spring, and, and in Oregon, I'm and I'm sure in other places in the country, they board, either took the rims down or some put some apparatus up to take the you know to take the rims away, and, and you know, and so they couldn't even go to the park for a while. But it's good that they can they can get outside and and kind of get back to the kind of the grassroots of hoops a little bit.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Coach, I always enjoy talking to um, college coaches and so forth. And, of course, you know, the, the, I think, and this is just my personal, the NEI coaches, the small Division three coaches, I think I think are some of the best teachers of the game because you absolutely have to love it. And, and high school coaches. So mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I focus on in my podcast are guys that absolutely love it. And I'm sure that, you know, you want to – Coach at the higher level, which you'll talk about later, and so forth. But I think you guys are really the true uh, purists of the game. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to kind of share with us, talk about growing up in the game in Montana, and so forth. How did you know when you were going to become a coach?
1: Well, first of all, thanks, thanks for the compliment. It's um, you know I, I think as small college coaches, we we all try to do our best with what we have, and you know we all have very varying, varying levels of, of resources and. It's much different than, you know, what everybody commonly looks at at the Division One, Division Two levels, those types of things. So um, certainly appreciate the compliment. But, yeah, Montana is a – I wouldn't say it's a basketball state. You know, it's a football state. Um, uh, we've, you know, produced a number of, you know, smaller Division One football players. And typically in the state of Montana, on the, on the boys' side, if we have a player, you know, one player in each class in the whole state, Um, that goes division one. It's, you know, that that's kind of the norm every now and then you get a a special one, like a trace Tinkle at Oregon state. um, But and a Josh West is the played at Stanford and was in and out with the Oklahoma city thunder, but it's not a big basketball state. We don't get a lot of pros out of the state. Uh, The girls side has been a lot stronger. Um, It's, We've had a number of, of high level kids that went to Stanford, Gonzaga, um, the University of Montana. Obviously, has had a had an outstanding program under Robin Selvig for God, thirty years, I think. Um, and so it, it, the state has produced you know anywhere from three to five Division one kids on the girls side every year, which is kind of unique. Um, for me personally, it was you know I grew up in Missoula, which is one of the bigger cities. It was about it was about forty thousand people when I was growing up. Um, now it's probably closer to 70 or 80 um, and, and played, it, played in the largest high school classification. We go double A down to C. Um, so we have four classifications of, of high school sports. Um, just kind of fell in love with it probably when I was, I would say, sixth grade, seventh grade. You know, we didn't do the travel stuff. It was all just like we talked about earlier. It was in the backyard. It was shoveling snow to ha- have it, you know, less slippery than it could be in the wintertime. <laughs> Um, and just, you know, playing any ch- chance you could, but you played all sports, you know, we played, played soccer or football in the fall. And then, you know, turned around, I played golf in the spring. Some kids did track. Everybody was a three sport athlete. Um, and in the summer we went to, you know, Montana, Montana state basketball camps, and then just played in all the three on threes that we could find outside. Um, and so I, I thought it was a really good experience. I think my parents played a, played a big role in just kind of cultivating my love. They didn't, uh, they certainly weren't overbearing. They didn't, you know force me into anything i remember growing up every year they just said we'll pay for one camp and if you want to go to more you got to find a way to pay for it and so right you know so so we worked and and tried to save up five six seven hundred dollars to pay for camps and three-on-threes and i just kind of rolled with it and um i was a i would say i was a decent high school player i wasn't <laughs> certainly wasn't great i was slow i was non-athletic um but i i always thought the game i always, had a pretty good feel for the game and um, was fortunate enough to, to win a state championship my junior year um, and, and get get to the consolation finals my junior year. So I had, had a pretty good high school career at Missoula Big Sky. Um, and then we, uh, I moved on and played at Montana Tech for four years, um, played basketball and golf. Um, before and, I, and that's when kind of when I started realizing that I wanted to coach I thought I wanted to be a civil engineer and actually make money and have a retirement plan and all those types of things <laughs> right <laughs> but uh, uh, it's funny how you you fall in love with different things after my sophomore year I did an internship surveying all summer long and said I don't think I want to be an engineer anymore and we started a JV program at Montana Tech and they did the same here at, at Montana Western and some of the other schools in the Frontier Conference and I tried to help, um, our varsity assistant was the head coach. And so I would go to practice and try to help him and started working camps after myself, so- you know, kind of in my sophomore year. And then, you know, into my third and fourth years, just started working kind of camps all over anywhere I could, whether it was in the state, I'd, I'd also go down to, for a couple summers, I went down to Aspen, Colorado and worked the Spurs, do a summer academy in Aspen, um, and, and worked that for a couple summers and just tried to you know, learn as much as I could and learn from different people and um, started coaching high school. My, my fifth year of college, uh, when I transferred to the University of Montana to get an education math degree, I was fortunate enough that they hired a friend of mine to be the varsity coach and he needed an assistant. So I coached varsity boys for, ju- excuse me, junior varsity boys for a year um, and just was going to school and bartending. And it was all set to go back and do it again the next year and do my student teaching. And, a guy that I had known from going to camps um, when I was, when I was growing up um, in, at Miles Community College in Miles City, Montana, which is 500 miles from where I currently sit in Southwestern Montana. Um, <laughs> sure. He had an assistant job and it paid $2,000 and you got a, you got a room in one of the quad apartments and a meal plan. And so I said, yep, I'm in loaded all my stuff in the car and and drove, drove 500 miles East and, and just dove into it. Um, It was a a fantastic opportunity for me because it's, it's small college hoops and you do everything from, from the laundry to a little bit of practice and game planning. And back then video was (laughs) a little more um, challenging. It wasn't VCR. We had moved past the VCR and we had bought a little, I call it a blue (laughs) box that you had to cut up all the film after games and, and do all those types of things. Now it's, now it's easy because we have synergy, but, um, yeah. it, sure. it was all intensive and all consuming. And, you know, I just did, you know, obviously I wasn't making any money. So I had to bartend at the golf course and work at the local sporting goods store. And I started teaching classes, um, a little bit as an adjunct professor, just did some of our developmental math classes and my second year. That, I thought that was my path and we I got to my second year there and the women's coach had a really good program um he's an outstanding coach Dwight Garner he's now at Casper College in Wyoming um and and Dwight asked me if I'd be interested in helping him And so I did both I went to practice for four straight hours every day and um obviously sat on the bench for two games and and went through all those the range of emotions that, that you have when you when you do all that and it was eye opening for me coaching women's basketball I was I I I fell in love with it. Um I knew a couple months in that that's what I wanted to do. Um had a tough decision after that cuz I had uh I was offered our development director position with our foundation at the at the community college and it was a significant amount of money for me at the time and I knew I couldn't do both teams and I ended up staying on the men's side cuz I felt loyal to to the guy that brought me there and gave me a shot. Um and did that for a couple of years and he left Um, at the start of, well, actually in my fourth year, our our women's coach left and they hired me as the women's coach. And so I was excited about that. Then our men's coach left. So I coached both teams for a semester. Um, Wow! (laughs) Basically, I mean, he was there, but he just kind of said, Hey, they're not going to listen to me. I'm out of here at January 1st. So you just kind of run with it. And we ended up hiring a coach at at Christmas time and he, he kind of took over, but I still kind of did both. He ran practice, but I kind of was still kind of the main contact point for the guys for that year. So that was kind of a long year. Um, luckily I wasn't married, wasn't married enough, but it was funny how I did. Exactly. I, I grew. To, <laughs> I didn't hate going to men's practice, but I certainly didn't look forward to it. Um, I just wanted to be with, with my team and, and, and my girls, so to speak. Uh, and so, after that, I just, I stayed there at miles for another four years and continued to assist the men's program and was the head for the women's. And then he, he flipped over and helped me. So it was a really good situation before the opportunity at Western arrived. And so I visited with my wife. She was ready to get out of, out of Miles city. That was her hometown. She'd been there pretty much her whole life. And and so we packed up and moved to this little 4,000 person town here in Southwestern Montana. And now, now we're looking at year nine coming up, hopefully if we get to have it. Um, and it was it was super eye opening for me. I, I thought it was going to be a place where you're going to the four year level from the two year level, and your kids are going to be, you know, committed, love basketball, yada yada yada. And it it wasn't wasn't what I thought. And so I made some mistakes my first few years. Um, you know, had had an epiphany riding after my I think it was my third year riding home on the bus, just about where our program was. We were okay my first couple of years. We were, we had some talent. I took the job cause I thought we had some of the best talent in the league and then our six, three center got hurt. And I never got to coach her, but, um, I think we finished in the middle of the pack the first couple of years. And then we, we were wrapping up a last place season, my third year. And I just knew we had to make some changes if I was going to be happy doing my job. I mean, obviously it's about wins and losses, but for me, it was more about enjoying coming to work and, um, having the right kids in our program and those types of things. And so we had to make some changes and we did and, Followed up our last place season with another last place season, but it was a lot different because I actually enjoyed the second mm-hmm. one.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, right. Sure. And, and it just kind of flipped that kind of flipped the script for us. We, we were close, but we weren't there yet. Um, and the next year we, ad- we only added one player and we went from last to I think third um, might've been second, second or third um, the following year made our first national tournament. And gosh, I think it had been 10 years or so. Um got out to the national tournament and actually won a game and then got to the second round and got beaten a buzzer beater and overtime to the team to Oklahoma City who won it that year um, and so I think that really gave our kids a taste of what it what it takes and what it feels like in the commitment that they had to make um and so we <coughs> excuse me i 'm just kind of going on and on but uh
0: <laughs> I love it we, yeah. we
1: went after getting beaten the second round on in the buzzer beater the following year we we added a, a Pro- probably, if she's not the best player that's ever played in our league, she's got to be right there, uh, a point guard from Spokane, Washington, and she was dynamic. Um, and we made a run to the Final Four that year and got beat by Freed Hardeman, who, who won the national championship the next night. Um, and then we were able to, to get Freed back in the semis again the following year and, and beat him in a close game in overtime and then and then won a national championship the following year. So it was it was quite the run. Um, and as much fun as it was, I was almost even more proud of our kids this year because we were picked we were picked last or second to last in our league and ended up getting beaten double overtime at home last game of the year that would have won us a conference championship. So it was, it was a, it, a good statement to me that we were still moving in the right direction and had the right kids in our program instead of just having that one unicorn of a player that, you know, carried us essentially to a, to a national championship.
0: Yeah, I love your story, Coach. And I, I, one thing about by doing this podcast is I've learned so much. I love hearing about how coaches have developed kind of their philosophy and ideas of the game because everybody thinks you just come in and you just have this great philosophy. But even at the college level, it evolves, right? Mm-hmm. So it sounds like to me you have evolved, but which mentors, was there anybody? that really shaped your philosophy or did you have to learn just by hard knocks, how to, how to develop your philosophy?
1: You know, I think when I was young, when I got my first job, you know, what 13 years ago, it was really, it was Dwight Canary and Sean Neary because those were kind of the two guys that I knew as well as my college coach, Rick Dessing. Um, He was an outstanding defensive tactician. Um, And so I really, you know, speaking to what you said, I, I went into it going, we're going to be great defensively and we're going to, you know, we're going to lock people up and, control tempo and, and do all the things that I knew um, and that I had been raised in. And then as it went, I, 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 I changed, I evolved, like I said, I evolved and I, yeah, the, I think defense is important. Um, but like for me, I felt like we were so bad offensively because I wasn't spending time emphasizing development with our kids offensively. And our system, uh, we were mostly a basically all Princeton, a little bit of drill drive, but I really dictated with a ton of sets and those types of things, how we were going to play. And, you know, with the age of synergy and you, you have good coaches in your league, it makes it really hard to score as the season moves on. And so I flipped and said, instead of doing, you know, a week of defense, the first week of practice, we didn't play defense the first week of practice. It was all offense all the time. And not that that was going to be our emphasis, but I felt like we needed to make our kids better at offense. And I tell coaches in clinics, sometimes they look at me kind of cross-eyed, but I, I think any idiot can coach defense. I really do. I mean, it's get your kids to play hard, you know, whether you're going to emphasize rebounding, however you're going to play, whether it's pressing or pack line, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it's easy, but teaching kids how to play on offense, I think is really hard. And I think it takes, it takes time. It takes patience and it takes a vision for how you want your teams to play. And that's what, for me, that's what changed in terms of you know, how much freedom we were going to give them and teaching them how to play versus, you know, just how to run plays.
0: Yeah. And coach and my podcast is about learning what coaches do to develop their system. And I, I really want to get the details and so forth on that and, and how you do it. Because I think to be honest with you, what you do at the NAI level, college level, to me is not that much different from what we do at the mm-hmm. high school level we don't have as talented as players. So I think high school coaches can really get a lot out of this. Before you do that, coach, talk about the two thousand nineteen championship team. And what I study, you mentioned one word. You feel like your team was unified you had a lot of unity how was that developed um you know I think a lot of it came through failure
1: um you you know you flash back to two years prior three years prior like I think three of our five starters they were all starters as freshmen or sophomores on the team that got last place in our league and you know they 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 believe that we were moving in the right direction um and then then they start to see a little bit of success and like i said you lose a close game to a team that wins it they think hey maybe we do belong here and you know cuz we don't get to play a national schedule you know that you know we go to try to go to california we go to arizona and try to play some good teams once a year but we're not traveling to kentucky and missouri and tennessee where there's a you know a ton of powerful naia teams um and so they didn't really know until they got a piece of it and they were you know kind of forged through failure and I think when you when you have a team that's built that way, and you have the right character of kids, which we had some just some really really high character kids from blue collar families. Um, you know, we had one out of state kid basically that played, um, and the rest were all from the state of Montana. Um, and there, most of them are all Class C, Class B kids, and a couple of Class A kids, uh, which is the, the three smallest classifications in Montana. So, I mean, our our center was. Five foot ten. She was a point guard in high school that played for her mom in a town of in a high school with like 17 kids. Um, you know, and our our uh our kind of our our bet one of our better wing players um was a was a five nine guard that that went to high school here but she grew up in a place called Wise River, Montana, a population of like 50. I mean, it's a it's a ranch in <laughs> town in the middle of the mountains, yeah. And, you know, and then we had a kid off the bench that grew up in a ranching town with a that doesn't even have a high school. She had to drive over a mountain pass every day to go to high school growing up. You know, it's a it's just a unique it was a unique group of kids. Uh, but that's what that's what our town draws to. And that was something that I didn't understand in t- terms of recruiting was that giving the kids that want to be here and understand what this place is all about, because um, those are the kids that thrive because because they're bought in from day one.
0: Yeah, I love that. And uh, to me I get really excited about that. Well, that that would be a great challenge coach and I it sounds like man you just took control of that and really ran with it. Um you had one player uh Brianna King, uh, Brie King that that apparently was really a tremendous player for you. But it sounded like to me she possessed what you call calm under pressure. How did she develop that, was that something? through training or is that something that she just possessed she was a key to your team right boy yeah I
1: mean I'd be lying to you if I said it was my I did it I mean she just she just has it I mean she it's hard it, it's hard to describe Kevin she's you know she plays league that I would say is not great in the, in the NWAC I mean there's there's typically a few players that can help you but it's not it's not like the Texas junior college league where they're pumping out you know dozens of high level division one kids or the Florida league or, you know, or even down in, you know, down in your area where there's some really good junior college basketball, like it's not a great junior college side. And she dominated that league for two years. You know, we were fortunate. She tore her ACL. I think it was her junior year, um, the end of her junior year. And I mean, she was, she's a mid major kid at even at five foot four. Um, but she tore ACL, didn't play her senior year, didn't do well academically, had to go junior college and didn't do well academically in junior college. And we were able to get her in. And our academic system here is is really unique. We do a block scheduling where they take one class for three hours a day for 17 days. Uh, right. So okay. for her, it was a way for her to be successful academically. She graduated this spring, which I'm not going to say it was a miracle, but I I, I am It's for sure when when the day that I decide to stop coaching, I won't have a kid that's more surprising that she graduated from college. And so that was pretty awesome. But she was – she's always – she always looks like she's running at about a five. I mean, she doesn't get high. She doesn't get low. Um, Really, her her biggest weakness was when we played teams that we knew weren't very good, she was awful. Uh, She'd miss layups. She'd turn it over. She'd dribble it off her foot. But on the flip side of that, if you you know, I've never had a kid that when when the game is big and the moment is big and the lights are the brightest, she's at best. Right. I mean, she had I think she had over she had, she had forty, I think she had forty in one of our elite eight games or forty one something like that. She had over I think she had thirty seven and thirty nine in our national championship run in the final four and in the championship. I mean, she was just she just she just gets locked in and. I remember the year in 2019, the first round game, uh, we're playing Georgetown, Kentucky, and she's in foul trouble. She hadn't got three fouls and a half all year, and she got three fouls in the first quarter. You know, she got she got two quick ones. I took her out for a couple minutes, put her back in because it was close, picks up her third. She comes out, and our, we go on like an 18-1 run and just blow the game wide open. And she's looking at me at the towards the end of the second course. Like, do I get to go back in? I said, Heck no! <laughs> you stay right here. It was close when you were in. There. Right, and Surely. she just she couldn't get locked in in that game. But then, and then I think the next she has thirty whatever, and just kind of looks at me like, that's why you play me. And you know that's what great ones do; they have that edge. And I hope I get to
0: coach another one like that, but I'm not sure it'll happen. Now, did she surprise you how she ended up as a player, or is that just? Um, did you did you see that in her? Because I know recruiting stuff for you, coach. Because when you recruit, can you project talent? That's right. I mean, you have to do that, right? You have to figure out is this kid going to be good? Did you know that? Project. I like that
1: word, Kevin. I usually call it guessing, but yeah, it is projecting. I guess.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We
1: knew she could. We, I mean, well, we knew she was good, uh, but she'd never really played with very good <laughs> players, and so really, her first year was all about you know, trying to manage her mentality and her trust in her teammates. Cause we had good enough players around her. Um, but she was never used to using them cause she is a good passer, but a lot of times her first year she'd make the wrong decision. And we spent a lot of time in the office, just going through, like, tell me what you see. And she could see it all. She just wouldn't do it. And, you know, I think that gets forged, you know, through a season and being able to trust them and just understand, you know, what each person's strengths and weaknesses were. And in her second year, her composure and her, you know, her thought process and decision-making just changed. It just did a complete 180. And that's the difference between, you know, whatever we were, 24 and seven and, and 30 and four. Um, and so that, that was the big thing for her that just really took her to the next level as a player um, that, that became really, really hard to guard uh, when she started to involve her teammates.
0: Yeah and she created um you know you have a legacy now in your program which I think definitely helps now right mm-hmm. in continuing the success that you're having um coach again go back let, let's talk about um your team now mm-hmm. and talk about a kid Gabby Weber I love that story yeah. she had a major injury uh, I think she's still in your program is that correct talk about her story a little bit Yeah so
1: Gabby is a kid she she isn't a, she's she's going to be a freshman this year um Okay. She, I thought as when she was a freshman, you know, we obviously pay, you know, we got to recruit Montana extremely hard and, and try to get the best kids that we can because that's the way that we're funded. That's, that's what the bulk of our team will be. Um, mm-hmm. She, I, when she was a freshman, I thought she was the best player in her class and I didn't think it was close. Um, and, you know, I, you know, great player, five, eight combo guard could play the point. Um, but we, I, you know, I, we'd watch her and I'm like, well, she ain't, you know, we're not getting her there's we'll continue to watch her we don't have a shot well then she starts having kind of mysterious this you know kind of mysterious leg issue and they couldn't it started in her sophomore year um towards the end I think it was the end of her sophomore year um and they thought it was they didn't know if it was cramps they didn't know if it was an artery problem they didn't know they they thought it was compartment syndrome they, they couldn't figure out what it was um you know, Hi, this is Kirk Gilsner of Clackamas Community College Women's Basketball, formerly Oregon City High School Girls Basketball. And as a veteran coach, I'm always looking for new ideas, new things to listen to, somewhere I can improve my coaching. And I've discovered the Championship Vision podcast from Kevin Furtado, and it has become my number one go-to podcast each and every week. Kevin brings in guests that provide a unique perspective, whether it's on X's and O's, philosophy, drill work, whatever it might be. Uh, he's going to get something out there that's going to help me as a coach get better. And I think that's what we should all be doing as coaches is helping each other get better. Uh, Kevin himself is, is always hungry to learn. and You can sense that in his podcast. And so again, I can't recommend it highly enough championship vision podcast, Kevin Furtado, keep up the great work. She got close to the point where, you know, they had talked potential amputation. I mean, but she's a, and she's a gym rat. She wasn't going to do it like that. Her dream was to play college basketball and, so she didn't play her basically her entire junior year. They finally diagnosed. I can't even tell you what it is. It's some complicated word um, where she's basically been rehabbing this her lower leg for upwards of a year and finally came back at the end of last year. Um, when was it? I think it was late February. You know, you know, minutes restriction, all those types of things. She has a little brace um, and, and got to play kind of through the into the playoffs to try to qualify for the state tournament and those types of things. And she was a kid that we kept in contact with. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a risk because we're not sure if she's going to be able to handle the rigors, you know, is there not, not, if she's going to be able to, is her leg going to cooperate? I should say, because she's as hard nosed as they come, right. but um, it was a risk for us, you know, to try to get her into our program, but she's the type of kid I want in our program. Like a kid that absolutely loves hoops um, is of high character, will do anything she can to help her team and, and works extremely hard. And so, you know, if, if she's right, we, we, in my mind, I I think we absolutely stole a kid that's got no business being at our level. Um, and so I'm going to be really excited to see the rest of her journey and see how it plays out. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully she has the best of health and, and she can have a good career for us.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You know, w- what What I see, though, is how how you're building your program, because I think a lot of colleges would say, you know what, injury, no, thank you, and, <laughs> and forget about it. So it sounds like to me, and tell me this, Lindsay, that you, you're building your program. If you had a chance to get a really talented kid or a kid that maybe wasn't as talented but had a great intangibles and work ethic, who would you take? Well, it, it's, 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 a, it's a complicated, <laughs> I know it's it's a a,
1: complicated question because you have to take, right. you know, for us, what state are they from? How much is it going to cost us? What's the risk? You know, what's the cost risk analysis, so to speak? I mean, that that all plays into right. it, too. But for us, you know, we don't get. You know, and I, we're just not getting the best kids in the state of Montana. Um, we're not where we're at is not a destination. You know, unless it's a rural kid that that enjoys that that lifestyle and the makeup of the town. You know, we don't have a mall, we don't have a Walmart, we don't have, you know, we got one, two grocery stores and five places to eat in town. Like, there's just nothing here, unless you're a hunt, you're, unless you want to hunt and fish and you know, play hoops and go to school. And so, we don't necessarily get those kids. So I would say we probably lean more towards the kids that you know maybe aren't as talented, but you know that we look at and say, yeah, their jump shot's not broken, and if we work with them. Two three years down the road, they can be a good player for us. Um, and so, if they're the right size, and like I said, if the cost is right for what we can get them for, then you know
0: that's probably the direction that we would lean. Coach, talk about NEI really quick. before you go into your. I'm going to ask you about your offense and defensive system. Tell us about because I have. I'm at a small school, single A school in Georgia, and we have, we have, we have what I consider really smart academic kids that can really play but um i have one girl this year going to um uh tennessee chattanooga division small division one school but i got a bunch of other kids that i think that can possibly play down the road at an nei division three level talk about the great experience a kid can get at an nei school and the challenges well it's it's a. Uh, you know, at
1: the highest levels of NAI, if you look at the top 15, top 20 teams in the country, and really, if you look at the top 10, you know, the top 10 teams in the NAI are like, they would beat a lot of the bad division one schools. Um, and, and that's okay. something that I believe, cause it happens. Like, I mean, it's, I mean, you look at, you know, like Campbellsville in Kentucky, like the division ones don't play Campbellsville cause they don't want to, pe- they don't want any part of them. Like it's, it's a, it's a really high level of basketball at, at the higher levels in the national rankings. And then, and even the NAIA division two level, the, you know, there's, there's four or five division two teams NAIA wise. I, I think it was, I can't remember who it was. One of the Midwest schools in Indiana uh, took, uh, who was it? Was it, was it Drake to double overtime last year? I mean, it's a good level of basketball right. if you find the right program. Um, and the thing that's nice about it is we don't really have contact restrictions, you know, so you get, if you want to get better, you can get a lot better at an NAIA school just because if you're, you know, if the coach puts in the time, and those types of things, because we can do whatever we want in the summer and we can do a lot more from a time perspective throughout the year. Um, and I still think it's a pure level of basketball. Like you don't have the politics and you don't have um, some of the, you're not getting a lot of the kids that, have had a lot of things handed to them on a silver spoon through the AAU circuit and those types of things. So it's a it's it's different from that perspective, um, and so I think that's those are really the benefits of it. And you're doing it in a small college setting where you're going to get attention from your professors, and they're going to know your name, and you're going to know a lot of people outside of campus. Cause you're not spending the whole time in your basketball facility because we don't have basketball facilities. We have multi-use facilities. Right. So right. Um, it's a different, it's more of the college experience than, you know, what the division one athlete sees. Um, and, and a lot of kids just, they see division one. I and think that's the only answer. And, and a lot of times that experience might not be the best one for them because they, mm-hmm. they can have a, a better experience and be an all American and play a lot of minutes and win a lot of games at the NAIA level or sit on the bench and be number 13 or 14, you know, at the Division One level.
0: I would think, though, that for – and I, I coach girls my whole career, so I kind of understand their psyche a little bit. I would think that would be ideal for a lot of kids because mm-hmm. I'm looking at – you know, I have one kid, that little sophomore kid. She's already looking at um, Emory University, Berry College out here, small schools. Yeah. That have great academic settings. I think there's kids that are lost though. That give up on the game. That could play at the next level. What do you think? Oh, I think there's always kids out
1: there. I, I think there's uh, there's kids all across the board in every state okay. that that might not get seen because they don't have the financial resources to be on the AAU circuit. Um, you know, they don't. Maybe they don't have. Maybe they don't even have the technology to get game film out and those types of things. So I think there's, there's so many places where you can go play. Um, and a lot of it now is with technology is the kid kind of has to take the bull by the horns when they're a sophomore, junior, and identify the schools that fit them academically and reach out to the coaches. And, you know, oftentimes that's where you find your best players, to be honest with you. Um, Recruiting is an inexact science. There's no doubt about it. and There's always kids that fall through the cracks.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you guys got to really work hard and so forth. But I think it sounds like to me, Lindsay, that you guys have to rely on. I'm sure you're you're really connecting with a lot of coaches, right? Because they're, they're the ones that will get the players to you. I mean, is that really the key for recruiting for you guys? Because you probably don't have the big budget. Yeah, you can go for free. Or, or a budget. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, we try, we, we, we really do a lot. We hosted a, a high school jamboree here on our campus every June. Well, not this June, but you know, where we'll get 25 to 35 teams. Um, and so that's obviously yeah. helpful. And then we just really try to hit all the team jamborees, you know, in our state, whether it's at MSU Billings or university of Montana or Montana state, and that really gets us an opportunity to see a lot of kids in a short period of time. Um, and so yeah, I mean, you have to lean on those high school coaches, um, you know, get to see them with their eye and then and pick their brains and visit with counselors at the school. And if you go to the school, maybe stop a random kid in the hall and ask them if they know the kid and, you know, do all the homework that you
0: can from that side of things. Um, it's all important. Yeah, and it's also our responsibility, right, Coach, that we have to help out. If we have a kid that maybe has fallen through the cracks – we got to help them out because there, there's I think at the, at the women's level, there's opportunities out there because I, I know a lot of coach. I, I know there's opportunities for girls a little bit harder on the men's level, but mm-hmm. uh, on the level, there's definitely opportunities at the next level.
1: There is. And it's, you know, the the nice thing about the NAIA level and even the Division two level um, and, and obviously division three is a little bit different model just of, of how they do things but the the size game that they play especially on the men's side isn't quite as important I don't think I, mean, I don't think we've never had any big kids so I don't really think size is that important I mean our team two years ago was five ten five nine five nine five four five six and <laughs> that was it we didn't right. have a kid over five ten that played and you'll play the masters and they're six, eight, six, two, six, one, six foot, five ten. <laughs> you know, it's a, but at the NAIA level, it's those, those five, those six, two kids typically aren't super, super skilled. And so the size doesn't matter. You can have a small point guard or you can have a little bit undersized post as long as she's strong and understands positioning and those types of things like it, it's not as much of a size game. And so I think that allows you to go out and, you know, take a kid here and there and whether it's a walk-on spot or a minimal scholarship and, and see if, see how hard they work. It's the one thing that you can, you really can't project, you do your best, but you don't know when the kid gets away from mom and dad and they have to make their own decisions about, you know, what they want in life, what decisions they're going to make. And, you know, I think it helps when you have a bunch of kids that like to be in the gym and they can bring other kids along, but you still don't know, um, how hard they're going to work at their game and um, you know, in their own time and as, you know, obviously when they're with their coaches, they're fine, but it's, it's the stuff away from their
0: coaches that make them into the players they are. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I know you guys do your homework on a lot of players. I know it's not that easy coach um, talk about, it sounds like to me you have versatility in your kids um, because you don't have a lot of size. Talk about your offense and defensive system. And my question for you is, How do you get – teach us how do you get both of those to coexist because I know a lot of coaches at the high school level, they might – I mean, they – I don't know if they really coordinate their offense and defense together. Mm -hmm. Uh, We press and run, and we're looking for quick shots, and both on the offense and defense. How do you all play?
1: We play – I'd say, you know, if you look across our league – we're probably the high, if we're not the highest tempo team, we're probably right up there. Um, you know, obviously we embrace kind of the, what we call the modern game and us being smaller, we got to, we got to shoot the three and we got to shoot it well um, to have a chance. And we we're, we don't press, we do, we press a little bit, but it's more of a tempo press. Um, I just, my personal belief is that, you know, at the college level, if you're a pressing team, you're going to run into a team with good guards and you're going to get shredded. And right. so I, I think we have to be really good in the half court uh, on the defensive end, and we're so we're we're not necessarily uh you know we'll, our kids do a really good job of guarding the ball, um, and, but because we play a lot of one on one and we make them do it out of long closeouts and right. all those types of things that they're going to see in a game, and so our kids are pretty good on the ball, um, and we're a pack line front the post, um, just keep everything in front we go underneath probably 85 percent of on ball screens and dare kids to shoot it um and and then we'll we we do a lot of switching one through four um on on ball situations and a little bit off ball not not quite as much because we like to try to keep our matchups as as true and dictate them as much as we can um but that's really kind of our defensive philosophy and i I felt like if you play that way, you can mesh it with whatever you want offensively. We do run into some problems sometimes where we're shooting it a little quick and then teams are grinding us on our end and our kids get frustrated. Uh, whereas if maybe if you pressed and forced tempo a little more, it might fit. But I'm not – I can't do it. Doesn't. <laughs> I've tried it. It doesn't fit my personality. I can't coach it. It drives me crazy when teams get open layups. And I know that it's going to happen if you press, so we just don't do it. It's better for my blood pressure for us to just try to make teams work in the half court. Um, and so that's really kind of, you know, defensively. We're mostly man just because we're small. We've tried to play zone, and we just we haven't been very good at it, um, right? When I coached junior college, we had some really good zone defensive teams, probably because we had a little more length and some bigger kids under the basket but this team mostly plays man. Now uh, we play a little bit of a one, two, two matchup. We've messed with the, with the buzz in, in years past, but once again, I'm just not good enough to coach it. So we just have to try to keep it simple in the half court and go with what I know and what I can coach. And um, that's, that's kind of what we look at defensively.
0: Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to add to that. We, I, my good friend is Mike DeVelvis um, who, uh you know, created the buzz defense and I, he's been on my podcast. We actually run the buzz coach and it's crazy. We, of course I'm at the high school level, so we can be a little bit more aggressive, but yeah. we run buzz two, two, one. Um, but um, is it, is it to tell me about why teams are not, you mentioned it before about not pressing as much. I noticed the college coaches I speak with, man, very few of them are pressing. Is it just like you said, I, you, you face really good guards. I think so. I mean, at,
1: at the high school level, and, and no offense, I'm, I I would imagine, especially if you're at a smaller school, like there might be two kids on the floor that can't dribble or pass at all. Exactly. And so yeah. I'd press if I was at the high, if I had high school girls, I would press like crazy because I know that, and I have a good friend of mine that's won, I can't even keep track of how many state championships he's won, and that's what they do because he knows if we can, if we just smother their one or two best players, they'll make those other three have to do something, you can't get beat. And at the college level, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, there's just too sure. many good players that, that can make a play on their own. And so I, I, think, I think you can get some stuff out of it if you have it in your package. You know, we have some quick stuff that we do on makes where we try to trap the inbounder and take away reversal and, you know, catch them sleeping, so to speak. But it's just not something that we can hang our hat on. I just feel like – and, like, to me, once again, what, what can you be great at? is, is kind of always, I mean, I met Jim Coll- read Jim Collins book years ago. Like what, what can you be great at? And you can't be great at everything. And if, right. if you're a pressing team, you can be great at pressing, but your half court offense probably isn't as good or your half, you know, your half court defense probably isn't as good, or maybe you're not as good situationally because you have to spend more time on presses and different variations and all those types of things. So it's like, you either got to do it. Like you, like you said, you guys do it all the time or just be okay at it and have it in your package. And that's kind of the, or probably below okay and have it in your package is kind of how we do it. Um, But I I just think for us, if we want our kids to be free and and flowing and and with a lot of cutting and movement on the offensive end, we have to spend a lot of time at it. And we have to emphasize it and we have to let our kids play a lot of five-on-five and three-on-three and four-on-four so they get in situations and understand how to read the defense and read each other.
0: Talk about your offense then, Coach, because I I, I imagine you guys run a really – uh, I wouldn't say may, maybe not intricate system, but really a system that involves really solid fundamentals, cutting, screening, spacing. Talk about your system that you guys run
1: on offense. Yeah, for sure. You know, we don't do a ton of screening, um, but we do a ton of cutting. Um, I okay. think it's something that our freshmen, when they see it and they're just getting – back cut like crazy the first two weeks of practice. They're just like, oh boy, like I gotta, I gotta pay attention. Cause our kids, we, we talk a lot about, you know, setting your cuts up and reading your defender and understanding when to go and when not to go. Um, and because we've, like I said, I, in, in the past, I, I've ran a lot of, I wouldn't say I'm smart enough to run Princeton, but some, a lot of Princeton actions uh, and, and we've run it free flowing in the past. Now we've kind of got to the point where we just have a couple calls and just make them play out of those, some of those Princeton concepts. We typically do it on a make, um, where, you know, we're not necessarily we'll, on a miss. We're, we're gone. Like we, we don't, we don't have, doesn't now that we don't have Bree anymore, it doesn't have to go to our point guard. We'll let four different kids bring it up the floor. Um, and depending on who our five is, we'll let our five bring it up the floor. Um, we try to, we try to run the two, the two-sided break or the two-man side break, um, as much as we can on misses, but, on, and just flow into our, into our dribble drive. But on makes, we're trying to run typically some type of Princeton action, and then we just let our kids pick what action they want most of the time. Um, we don't dictate and tell them where they have to go. We talk a lot about it in Scout in terms of, of who is guarding who and who the weakest defender are. Those are the people that we want in the actions um, because we think we can take advantage of them. Um, and so that's that's really kind of the, the core is, is some of those Princeton concepts. And then every, the thing I like about it is then it just flows into dribble drive. And, you know, I, I like dribble drive in Princeton as a combo because in Princeton, they learn how to cut. And then dribble drive, I think your dribble drive gets really good when your kids learn how to back cut. So they're not just wheeling all the time at the top or, and handing it off and going laterally we want them going north and south and when you can start getting some cuts north and south I think that just brings another dimension to your offense so I I really like how they blend together and I also like that I don't have to just sit there and call stuff all the time because I'm like I said it's I'm not super smart so if we can just let our kids play that seems to work a little bit better for us it's a it's I I really enjoy it Um, the bad thing is then we start seeing a lot of zone (laughs) sure so so (laughs) that's That's something that's kind of really evolved for us the last three or four years is our zone offense. And and we've kind of meshed our zone offense with our man. And we run a lot of the same concepts from a ball screen perspective, against zone and man. Um, And then we spread. We are typically four out against the zone Um, and sometimes five if our five can shoot the three just to keep people spread. And we want to be able to penetrate the zone as much as we can.
0: Yeah, talk about just one or two. I know you can't, you know, it's it's hard It's hard on the phone, but try to get our listeners to visualize because I know my coaches have a pen and paper and they're, they want to get some ideas. I have a good friend of mine that he asked me, he says, you know anybody that kind of runs the Princeton? And mm-hmm. I said, well, I got a lot of resources on it. But um, so I want you to kind of describe how you go from the Princeton into Dribble Drive. Uh, we're a ball screening team. We run a lot mm-hmm. of ball screen at our level because I want kids attacking and it mm-hmm. opens up. Most teams don't defend the ball screen very well at our level. Kind of kind of visualize for us a little bit what you do. So we do Um, – let's say we're running – let's
1: say it's a make and we've called one of our prints in actions. <clears throat> we spend uh, probably – I know our kids think an inordinate amount of time playing three on three and four and four out of our Princeton actions just in the half court. Um, you know, whether it's a lot of it, we like to play make it, take it. Cause once again, we're trying to emphasize the offense. Um, and then I- invariably that emphasizes the defense, right? Because kids get tired of just playing defense all the time. So they want to get a stop right. um, and you don't give our defense a lot of rules when we're doing that, but we're, so we're teaching them all the different cuts and options and each concept's got two or three different options out of it. And then once we get to that, action whether it's a pin screen or it's a come together or it's a back cut then it's all dribble drive and we're just getting we, you know we just call it we're just telling them to get home and get to those four dribble drive spots on the perimeter in the short corner for our big and and we just play oftentimes it ends up in a ball screen which is another com you know simple concept that you can teach and give somebody else something to prepare for um just all depending on, on how the defense plays and, and who gets open. But usually once our five sets their ball screen, then we're just rolling them to the hoop and we're in our dribble drive stuff. But we'll just set one. We won't set. We do some continuity dribble handoff ball screen stuff just as a, you know, just another option. Um, but it's it's mostly set that ball screen and then we're ready right to dribble drive.
0: Right. And, and do you like your post? Do you run your – because what I'm thinking here, Coach, and correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong – I'm thinking of the Princeton offense. You got the high post, you got, you know, a right. two guard front, you got wide wings and they're back cutting the post. You know, you have cutters off the high post. So mm-hmm. what variation, are you, are, is that what you're doing into dribble drive or?
1: Yeah. So like, you know, let's say we feed the pinch post and it could be a five, but sometimes we put our guards in there too. Um, because what we found is guards don't like guarding guards either on the block or like in the mid post area because they've never done it. Right. And so sometimes we'll put our guards in there, but most of the time it's our, it's our P spot. And, you know, let's, if we, if we feed our P at the pinch post, um, they can run action away. We call it the deuce side. So the guy, you know, if I feed the post, if I'm looking at the hoop and I feed the post on the left elbow, I can either go to the wing that's kind of in the left corner ish area. We call that the A side cause there's one person or I can right. go to the deuce side or I can run what we call an under where they just basket, you know, maybe they've gone to the A side a couple of times or they've, excuse me, they've gone to the deuce. Defense starts cheating it. You just stop, you go right to the rim, maybe you get that cut. And then we set a pin screen with the A side guy and they go out the other way. And we can either flow that into a dribble handoff or, you know, that's actually one of our best actions. And it's super, super simple, but the, the lane's wide open. Um, right. Cause the big is out on the elbow or just above the elbow then our big just has to make a decision of who's going to be open. When we have teams that switch a lot, we run a lot. We try to run a lot of unders, you know, like when we do an offensive scout, it's like, okay, we know these guys are going to try to switch, switch off ball screens, So we need to run more unders and we need to look for the slip guy or the refusal or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And we get, you know, we'll get it, we'll get two or three really easy ones when we do it. Right. Um, and so like, those are just the three cuts. And then once, like I said, once that ball goes to the perimeter, the big can go, on ball or slipping on ball. And then we're ready right into uh, dribble drive stuff. But so that, and I, yeah, I love Princeton, yeah. all that. Oh, I can't remember what, I think they call it. I don't even remember what the Princeton terminology is anymore. Cause I've kind of turned it into my own. Cause so I could remember
0: it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It becomes your own. It, it, it's so cool though. That, um, and that's the one thing I love about basketball is particularly in coaching. You can take a concept that you learn and just make it your own. The creativity and coaching, do you think enough coaches are creative? I think the the great ones like yourself are very creative. I think you have to be creative, um, and I
1: think you have to be simple. That was what I found with Princeton is in the past we would run it where – if the ball got passed to the wing, we, we had one action. If the ball got passed guard to guard, we had another action. If it got passed straight to the center, we had different action. We did dribble handoff. Like we had all these reads and it was, in my mind it was really simple, but we had a really hard time getting our kids to comprehend what exactly what was going on, if that makes sense. Um, And so we just, like I said, we just changed it to where like, you know, we have our, that, that pinch post action and then we do run some chin, you know, the traditional back screen, flare screen that everybody's seen, but we just, we don't get that later in the year against teams in our league. We get a lot in the preseason off of it, but teams in our league have started running it. and We've had coaches in the league in the past that ran a lot of it. So it just doesn't work very well. Um, And then, and then we'll get, we have a little bit of five out stuff, but I I think you have to be as simple as possible. And it, and it sounds easier to do than it really is. I remember when I was younger, like I, like you want to help your kids, right? You want to put them in the best position that you can to, to get baskets or get stops, whatever it is. So you're trying four different zones and you know, Oh, I saw this at a clinic. It's, it was really good. So well, yeah, it was really good. Cause that's what that person lives, eats and breathes. Like they don't run four zones. They run one and they're really good at it. And so I think you have to decide what you can coach and, and keep it as simple as possible for our kids. Like our kids know, at a pinch, and if I say pinch, I say pinch away, dri- dribble handoff, they know, you know, or pinch, if I go, if, we, if I go pinch under refuse, they know, because it's simple, and it's all we do, there's, and it's funny, when I talk to coaches in our league, sometimes when they're scouting us, a good friend of mine, who's a r- really, really well-prepared defensive coach, he's like, he's like, I got like 20 pages of your sets, because he's still old school, he likes to write them all down, I said,
0: 20 pages of sets,
1: coach. I got like eight things on my play card. And so they just they know (laughs) they know what their options are because we do it all the time. And and that that makes it simple. Instead of having a million different sets, and then we what we tried to do with our sets is is blend them into our Princeton action. So it looks like Princeton, but really maybe we're running screen the screener. Or it looks like Princeton and we're going to get a, a flare screen in a different spot later on in the possession. And so they, they know, I can say, you know, and then we just make our calls as part of our original calls and just add something to it. Like they would like a football coach would, where, you know, you have your coverage, you have whatever, blah, 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 blah. And so they're kind of long, but they know what we're talking about. And so um, that that's what we've done with the majority of our sets to try to keep it simple. They still don't think it's simple because sometimes they look at you like you're speaking a different language, but Um, that's, that's what we've tried to do. So I don't know. Yeah. I think that if that answers your questions, I think it's, I think it's really easy to find stuff that you like. And that's the danger of, of the world we live in now with YouTube and for us, you know, for people that have it synergy, you can always find stuff like, Oh, that was awesome. But you always have to remember like, well, why was that awesome? It wasn't awesome because they put it in and worked on it for two days. It's awesome because they've spent a lot of time at it and, you know, like baseline out of bounds plays. We're probably the worst team in the country, baseline out of bounds, because we don't spend any time on it. (laughs) Like, we're usually putting them in two days before our first game. And every year I say, spend more time on baseline out of bounds. And every year I'm just like, I don't have time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's interesting you say that. Yeah, simple is better, particularly at our level, Coach. But it's amazing you say it, even at, you know, the college level and so forth. Because I know that you mentioned the coaching in your league, you're going against some really well-prepared coaches. So I'm imagining that your players have to be really smart on reading situations, right? Is that the separator? I think so. I mean, I think
1: you want to – be, you know, I think that every coach's goal probably is to have their team be unscoutable. That's why some coaches change their play calls or, you know, do whatever it is to try to disguise what they're doing. And for us, we don't change our play calls. We just have – different options out of each play call. So the kids can just decide what they want to do. And so, so it, it, to me, it kind of is unscoutable. Like, you know, every team's going to play you the way that they play you. And then that's where, you know, I I think another area coaches don't spend a lot of time on is offensive scout. And if you're playing a team that hard hedges ball screens or, you know, traps ball screens, well, you better spend two or three days before the game working with your kids on what they're supposed to do when they get trapped. So they don't, you know, they don't panic and, and throw it away and give them two points. And when they get trapped on a ball screen um, and I think, you know, even if that's not how you guard it, you have to have your kids prepared for what they're going to see defensively. You know, you're going to see a two, three zone. Well, this, not, you don't just talk about the areas you attack, you show them how you're going to attack those areas and the things that you're running, you have to alter your cuts into those areas and, and make sure the kids know this is what we're trying to do when we see this defense.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to talk a little bit about practice planning in the last question here a little bit. Um, and I want to, I want to, I, I want your feedback on this. And I learned this, this is one thing we're adding to our program. Um, we run a Gonzaga five out ball screen offense. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, but what we're adding in is and I learned this from another high school coach, is We're adding in that we call it number calls. So, If we call out a one, if we're reversing the ball from four to the wing and we go ball screen, we have a number call. Uh, A zero is a.
1: Hello, this is Craig Reed, owner and CEO of Corny Board Aids. We specialize in providing coaching aids and equipment for the basketball coach. We are also home of the Corny Board, the original sideline coaching board. I want to recommend Championship Vision Podcast. It is a great way to get insights into what other great coaches and leaders do in their programs. Kevin Furtado brings a great tool to coaches with this podcast. Thanks, Coach Furtado.
2: Hey, this is NBA skills coach Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball, and I'd love to help you get game results this season. Check out a free trial of my Pure Sweat training app on the Google Play and App Store
0: today pick and roll. A one is a slit. Two is like a refusal and drive baseline. So the girls are actually calling out numbers and not me. Yeah. So what, what, what's your, give me some feedback on that. I found that that's really ingenious by this coach that gave it to me.
1: I think it's really good. And I'd be interested to, to, to visit with the coach because what you're doing is you're, you know, you're dictating. So the kids know what they're going to do. Uh, right. Right. And so, right. Both the ball handler and the person involved in the action. Well, what I'd be curious to see is if it's after you do it, you know, Kevin, for if you stick with it for a year or two, those kids that are freshmen and sophomores, by the time they're, they're seniors and they're maybe have an older team, then do they still need the number? True. Because, because my guess is yeah. then they probably know, right? And that's just, it's just more advanced learning, but it's a good step. It's a good stepping stone to getting to where, they just understand that they need to read it, but it it's also good with your verbiage if it's all the same. Then you're like, okay, we're looking for a lot of twos, or we're looking for a lot of ones today, and so it's already in their mind, so they can recognize it and call it earlier and have some effective and clear communication.
0: Yeah, that's a great point you just mentioned because when we're practicing, we we haven't gotten to the point right now. We're just working on the zero. So how to yeah. you know how to actually pick and roll? So we're not we're not going too far, but you're right though. Uh, there's sometimes, hey, we're just going to work on one today. Um, and that's I think that's a good call during the game. Say, hey, what do you think here? Can they're, they're hedging that screen? Let's do a refusal and drive baseline. I mean, I think to me, it's a it's a better way to teach. For sure. Well, once again, it's simple. It's your, you know, it's
1: your vocabulary. And that's another thing that I encourage coaches to do. It took me I didn't do it till about four or five years ago. Was just created a die. Just have a word document with our vocabulary on it, and I give it to them. And this is what all the things mean. These are the words we use, and this is what they mean. And it seems elementary, right? Like, but once again, like as coaches, like we, you know, we probably spend more time on it than we should, and so <laughs> it's second nature to us. But for our kids, like, there, those aren't the words they're reading on on Instagram, and nobody's talking about you know ones, twos, and threes on on TikTok, so they have to know that this is how we talk. And then as they get more ingrained in it then, it, then it becomes more second nature for them as they've done it for a year or two. But it's just easier to communicate when they, when you say a word, like I was saying with our, our play calls, where we just mesh another play call into something that we're already doing. They're like, oh yeah, that's this action. And then we're going to do this. Or here comes the ball screen. It's a zero, it's a one, it's a two. you know, Whatever that is, right. if they know it, it's gonna be, it's going to be more effective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, the, your language is important, Coach. Right? I mean, yeah. I'm not sure if enough coaches are really doing that. Um, talk about your practice. I, I would imagine you guys are well drilled. Are you more of a drill coach, or I'm I'm a small sided game coach. I like mm-hmm. I like game action stuff. Tell me what you guys do. That's pretty much all we
1: do. Is is Small. whether it's a small side of game or five on five, we play all the time. Now we structure it right to get the emphasis that we want, but we don't, the only, the only drills that were drills, I guess would be the word that we're doing is in the, you know, maybe the first 10 minutes of practice where we have our, our passing, you know, we have a a simple passing drill that I picked up from Mike neighbors at a clinic a few years ago, but see, but we've taken the drill and said, okay, you have to pass with your left hand in these situations, in these spots, and you have to pass with your right hand in these spots. And my assistant and I, or if I have a student assistant, whoever it is, they'll watch, each will watch, we have four lines, they watch two of them and they're counting bad passes, right? So if it's outside, you know, hips to shoulders and it, they don't think it's crisp enough. If they're just floating it or tossing it, then they count it and we run. And so, you know, typically the numbers are, you know, early in the year, like it's more accuracy. And then later in the year, you have to get on them about, about crisp passes because early in the year, right. They're excited. So they're just zip, you know, they're just rocketing it. So we're dropping it. So that counts. Right. So we're emphasizing what we want, but there's no defense. And so we do that, you know, two, three times a week. And then we also have a, you know, some of our two ball dribbling stuff and then some full court dribbling stuff where there's no defense, but that's all we do where there's not a decision. Um, Everything, And then a little bit some of our you know some of our stationary shooting stuff that we might do later in the year. But we try to do all of our shooting outside of practice as much as we can. Um, we'll have some team stuff that that's fun that they like to do. Um, but I would say if I had to put a percentage on it, ninety five percent of the time they have to make a decision in what we're doing, whether it's two on one, three on two, three on three, four on four, five on five. We play a lot, and I think you have to play if they're going to learn how to play offense, right? And even defense because I've had kids in past years where you know everybody does four on four shell and we do too and mostly just for like a reps and it's harder to guard spacing wise but they're like well what if there's a fifth person on the floor (laughs) you know the the uh, the great what ifs and (laughs) and so you know some kids they want to see the fifth person on the floor and so we've done more of that out of shell and just five on five shell and start with our you know with some of our our offensive rebounding you know, philosophies and and mesh it into a full court rebounding drill where they're always going up and down. And then we don't have to run a lot.
0: Yeah. I really like that. And I'm a big Mike neighbors guy. I think I use too many of his uh, activities and drills, Um, but he's really a super smart coach. Um, Hey, talk about that bad counting. That makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking here going, "Ah, I like that idea. So you count bad passes, and obviously you give them like a standard you're looking for there, or yeah. So
1: you know we want because of how we play offensively, and I believe everybody should teach their kids to pass with their left hand and their right hand. Like we're not sure we're just talking like a push pass, right? Like right hand falls off, you snap it with your left hand. We don't teach chest passes. Like when do you throw a chest pass in a game? And so so we have you know you got to throw on one side they're throwing with their right hand, the other side they're throwing it with their left hand. And so they know we explain it to them the first day and our older kids coach it. Right. So we, we tell them what the rule, you know, the rules or the standards are. It's like, it has to be in your frame. And it can't have, you know, obviously it's subjective in terms of like how much zip they put on it, but like, you know how kids are, you put them in a passenger drill, they just start, they're just throwing soft passes. And we, and, and they're also in our Princeton spot. So it's, you know, it's a 20 foot push pass. Like they, our freshmen can't do it most of the time. And so we got, we have to modify and let them shoot free throws, take some of the some of the running out of it at the end. But our older kids teach it. They're like, nope, hit me here, hit me in the target, you know, left hand, left hand, left hand, and just constantly reminding them which hand they got to pass it with. And then you know, like anything else, you practice, and they get better at it. And then you start seeing them throw left-handed passes in games when they're when you know when they're pivoting, and throwing to their left, they're throwing it with their
0: outside hand like they're supposed to, like we believe they're supposed to anyway. Yeah, and I love that your players are grading it. Not your coaches aren't counting; your players are. Yeah, they're, our coaches
1: are counting, but our players. Okay. Are, our players are helping them, right? They're coaching helping them up them. as it's. I just sit there and watch and, you know, do what right. coaches do—hands on hips—and I don't really say anything because our players take care of most of it.
0: Yeah, and that's a sign of your culture. That's sort of, I mean. Because when your players, I, I I talk to a lot of really good coaches, and it's, when you give your players that ownership, man, that really aids in your. Um, just on your leadership skills. Um, mm-hmm. I love that. Coach, talk about tell me tell me this. What I'm finding out as a coach, help me out. When I do a breakdown drill, I, and then I don't see it in the five on five action. There's slippage there. Did I not teach it well enough, or do we need to go back and reteach?
1: I would just not do the breakdown drill and just make them do it out of five on five. And make them start with, you know, whatever action that you're trying to break down, the ball has to do this before you, you can play. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. <clears throat> and that's, I mean, I, I, just, I we just, I don't believe in a lot of breakdown drills. I just don't do a lot of them. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's so static and you have kids. Well, let's say you're doing, you got three kids in the breakdown drill and then you got 10 kids watching. Well, those 10 kids, if they're paying attention, can process it and execute the drill. You know what I mean? Right. And so if we do the breakdown drill, like, yeah, it's going to look really good because I'm watching. And, you know, if they're not dinking around, they're going to be able to go out and execute it fairly well. And then they'll get better at it on the second and third reps. And then you go put it into five on five. Well, now their brains aren't operating in the same fashion because now there's someone standing next to them. And they're like, well, am I standing in the right spot? I'm not sure if I'm standing in the right spot. Should I be on the other side of the floor? Am I in the action? Where's the action going? Like they have so much stuff in their head that naturally occurs when you put five people out there that now it's a little bit harder. So I just think the more you do it with five people or four people, I think not only, yeah, it's going to look sloppy. It always looks sloppy the more that you play because your kids know what they're running. They can cheat it, yada, yada, yada. The spacing's not as good, right? But if they learn how to play and then maybe that person whose person isn't even guarding them realizes, Oh, I can make a back cut here and I can, I can get us an easy layup. So the more times you put them in five on five situations, I believe they're going to be better in games in five on five situations. So I think it's okay to teach it. So they understand like maybe you're teaching footwork or you're teaching a ball screen angle. Then there's going to be some slippage And then, and maybe you just do it five on five and say, I need two perfect ball screens before I let you guys play, you know, before you can score or whatever. And if they don't, you stop them, you reset it. And I think as a coach, it's hard to do because it doesn't look good, right? Like practice, our practices, I don't think they ever look good. Like I just write down my notes, we were bad at this, bad at this, bad at that. But it's going to be better in a game if it continually looks bad in practice. Because if you right. stop them and hold them accountable for the whatever it is that you're trying to get them to do the right way, then eventually they're gonna they're gonna do it right because they want to play. Like that's what they want to do. They don't want to do breakdown drills. They want to play. Yeah,
0: for sure. Um, and I love that because I, I do that find also, I if that, <laughs> that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, Coach. Because um, I'm finding out. Um, I would agree with you. I, I think definitely the five on five is better. Uh, for some reason I I, I consider, hey, I want to rep this out more to get them more practice. And sometimes it's better just to emphasize more the five mm-hmm. on five. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I a hundred percent. I mean, I you know, if you're like you said,
1: you're a ball screen guy. So, you know, if you're doing two on two wing on balls, right, because that's that's the action. Mm-hmm. Well that's that's fine. But what if what if they slip and the defense is rotated and that big guy doesn't know what to do with it when they catch it twelve feet from the basket? They don't know where the ball's supposed to go because there's nobody else <laughs> out there. They're just going to freeze and stop. But if you have five guys, there's probably a guy in the opposite corner that should be sliding to the to the block for a layup. And if they don't, if they don't continually see it, and you know that's an instance where you stop and say, "Great, like you got an awesome job, great read on the slip, you got your catch." Where's the ball supposed to go next? And they go, well, "I don't know." Well, because there's nobody over there. But if there's a guy over there. That's where the defense came from. This is where the ball needs to go.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. It's a five-on-five game. And I, I listen to so many coaches say, hey, you should be doing nothing but five-on-five. And then I listen to other coaches, hey, you got to do a lot of breakdown. And it's, it's it's all based on what you believe in. Um, yeah, without
1: question. It's, you have to decide <laughs> what, <laughs> what you believe in and what, you know, because I know there's some coaches that probably don't think that they can coach out of five-on-five. And part of right. it's because you feel inadequate. Like there's times where we're playing five on five. I won't stop them for four trips. Mm-hmm. I'll just watch them. And, and maybe, maybe it's because, you know, I think this was a Mike neighbors thing. It's like, what are you emphasizing? Are you emphasizing, you know, is it competition? Is it execution? Is it, you know, conditioning? Like, well, what is it? And like, maybe sometimes I'll just let them play. Cause I want them to get tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like I see things that are wrong but I'll just let them go till they're exhausted and I won't blow the whistle. And then other times we're like, we're trying to hammer home, you know, whether it's one of our actions defensively, offensively, I'll stop them every possession. And then they get, you know, then they get irritated because they want to go up and down. But I think you have to decide on your practice plan, what you're emphasizing to mine. I was, you know, I did a lot of Mike Dunlap research and, you know, had watched some of his practices and my, my head coach was a Mike Dunlap guy years ago. And, and Mike's really good. And so that was just kind of what I modeled. Like we were breakdown, 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 and we look great. <laughs> it looks awesome. And then you play five on five and one person screws up and nobody knows what to do. And everybody just stands there and looks. And so, you know, I've, I, like we talked about earlier, I've evolved into, let's just play and let it be ugly. And, and there's going to be times where I might, I might miss something, but even though I might've missed something that we're emphasizing, they're still playing. They're still learning to communicate. They're still learning to cut. They're still learning all the different types of things that we want to do. And, you know, when, when should they switch? When should they not just by, just by playing more.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny, the, that the art of coaching right there's so many different ways you can look at practice theory in so many different ways that's what makes the game kind of cool hey before you go because i know you spent a lot of time with me sharing great detail on everything um talk to us about uh how do you get better as a coach so uh even at the college level you guys are you got resources you got mentors you got clinic what do you do to get better as a coach
1: I think you're always just looking for the next thing that you think can help your team. And it, it sounds simple. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that I think is constantly changing with, with, you know, the type of kids that we get and how they were raised. It's, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not like I was, or probably you were or most people that are in their forties, fifties and sixties. Like, you know, we don't, when I was told to do something by the coach you just did it. Yeah. And you never even thought to second guess it because you, that was your coach, right? Like you might not have always done what mom and dad told you to do, but your coach, like, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I was told because I want to play. And now they don't need to know that. Cause they, you know, I like, I'm sure a lot of coaches have talked about, like they, they have all the answers on their phone. So if it's there, sure. they can find it. And so, you know, that's a, that's a change that you have to make. And I, I'm not sure from an X's and O's perspective that you have to change that much. Because if you teach it and your kids can play out of it, it's going to work. As long as you're building the right skills and and building the right recognition uh, patterns, I I think all those things will come. But, you know, it's like for me, I'm I'm looking. Obviously, I go to clinics every year, whether it's one or two. And I remember during the quarantine, I was Lays and Perkins. I was zoomed out watching all those things. I mean, there was all kinds of good (laughs) stuff on there. So much that I I skipped (laughs) Russ's clinic because I didn't. I was tired of watching people talk for 30 minutes in front of a computer. Like I, it's right. a, it, you know, there's sometimes there can be too much. And so like, for me, some of the things that I've spent a lot more time at is we we're, we we're fortunate enough to have um, Heather Macy. Who's at, gosh, where is she now? She was at East Carolina and now she's coaching a junior college in North Carolina,
0: South Carolina. It's South Carolina. Yeah. I actually had Heather on the podcast a long time ago. Yeah. She's oh, great.
1: Yeah. Heather's great. And she was, yeah. she's friends with our athletic director and she was on campus for a week or so, kind of when she was in transition between Spartanburg Methodist and East Carolina. And yeah, she came in, it was actually, it was, it was our national championship year and came in and talked to our kids a little bit about some emotional intelligence. And some of that stuff is just fascinating. Um, to to become more educated about, like I'll never have the knowledge probably that, that Heather has about it, but you can take little bits and pieces and apply it to your indiv- individual meetings with your kids and continuing to try to be relatable and learn the best way to communicate with them on and off the floor and, and continue to build relationships because it, you know, we live in this changing world that we're going to have to be adaptable. And so I think, you know, from an X's and O's perspective, I don't probably pick up a ton every summer. Like I might pick up a new passing drill or something that I can take and make our own or a concept, but I've been doing this for what? 18 years now. I don't, I can't even remember. Yeah. 18 years now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I certainly don't know it all, but I've seen a lot. And, you know, I know what I have a much more better understanding of what works for me and what I can teach and what I what I can emphasize and believe in. And so I don't throw mud against the wall nearly as much as I did earlier in my career. Now I'm much more into like figuring out, you know, some of the the different things on the emotional intelligence standpoint and, you know, continuing to try to build relationships and treat our kids the right way to get the most out of them um, and and finding ways that motivate them, you know, especially intrinsically. I think that's, to me, I look forward, you know, into the future. That's, that's probably going to be the future, right? Like this pandemic is going to create enough different avenues for kids to get better if they want to on their own, you know, whether it's virtually getting one-on-one training virtually or, you know, through an app and, you know, all the video stuff that we have access to, like, the skill part of it is, I wouldn't. I don't want to say it's the easy part because it takes a lot of work. But I think it's the, it's right there and it's in front of you and everybody understands it. But you know, how, how are you going to get your kids to buy in and continue to create your culture and and respect each other and, and and play hard for each other and those types of things are, you know, they were always important, but I think they're more important now um, than ever before.
0: And coach, dad, those are all. I mean, those are all great points. Um, do you think? coaches do. I had a coach I spoke to just the other day, Matt Cates out here in Georgia, and he said coaches need to read more, not just watch. And I found that, okay, that makes a lot of sense because I think we spend so much time watching video and game film that we should read more, particularly about leadership. And I said, that's a valid point, Matt. So, I mean, do you think we do enough of that?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I and I'm guilty as all. I haven't read much at all the last four or five years. I've read a ton <laughs> my first probably 10 years. I mean, I, I still have our, you know, like our standards come from Patrick Lencioni's four, four obsessions of a leader. Um, okay. You know, so we have our four obsessions. And like I mentioned earlier, some of the Jim Collins good to great stuff. Like what three things can we be great at? I remember visiting him with a friend of mine, JD Guston who's at Dixie state about six or seven years ago. We were at a wedding and just shooting the breeze and, he just said, you know, what are you guys going to be great at this year? I'm like, wow, oh, this, 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 and this. He goes, well, that, you can't be great at all those things.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's the
1: simplest conversation right? you could possibly ever imagine. I'm like, well, why not? He goes, because it's too much. He goes, what are you going to be great at? I'm like, well, I don't know. He goes, well, shit, you better figure it out. Sorry, I didn't mean to cuss. But, uh, you know, it, it just struck a chord with me. Like, what three things can we be great at? Well, let's sit down and figure out our personnel and, and what's unique to us and and those are the things that we emphasize and, and make sure everything can lead back, you know, all roads lead back to those three things. And so I think, and those are not even leadership books. Those are just, you know, business books. There's so much knowledge out there that we don't think about as coaches. You know, that's a, you know, it's a great point in terms of just broadening your, your perspective, right? Like whether it's, I'm sure, you know, you can use stuff from history to help, help your team and help your kids be better people. Um, but there's, there's a lot of things out there that you just have to reach out and grasp onto. And I think reading is, it's paramount and there's no excuse not to do it. We all spend, you know, especially a small college people, we spend enough time on a bus that, that there's plenty of time that you can pick up a book and and knock out three or four or for us, sometimes eight hours, um, you know, reading a good book and highlighting and making notes. And, you know, I've kind of gone to more podcasts now. Uh, the summer's kind of my I don't watch much video in the summer. I kind of just listen to more podcasts because, you know, it's, it's a way for me to just listen and, and then, and, you know, put some notes in my phone and go back and listen again and, and, and try to wrap my brain around and decide if it works for us. But, you know, I kind of look at podcasts as similar to reading as long as you're listening to the good ones.
0: Yeah, and you're one of the good ones. You can have a bunch of people contact, you now, Coach, (laughs) while they're going on their mile run. You know, I mean, they're going to be listening to you. But um, it's amazing, you're right, how many coaches contact me and say, Coach, I went out for my run. I love that coach that you spoke with and so forth. So I do feel like podcast has a lot of value um, simply because we're on the move, right? Absolutely. It's an easy – you
1: can do it any, like, you know, like I told, I visit with you. I do a lot of painting in the summer, um, just on the side, something to do. Keep me busy if, the, if that makes sense. And I just plug in podcasts and listen to them for five, six, seven hours a day. And so I get a little irritated. They don't do them often enough, but I understand they're probably a lot of work. and You can't do it every day, but right, um, sure, there's so many good ones out there that I think can help you as long as you. You know, and I don't always listen to basketball podcasts. I listen to all kinds of different podcasts that I can get my hands on. And if I hear about a good one, I check it out. And There's just so much good content that's easily accessible and do it while you're mowing the yard or running or, um, you know, whatever it is that you like to do
0: in your spare time. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully you can add the championship vision to your uh, to your selection. Hopefully, coach. Um, yeah,
1: I've, yeah, I've listened to a couple. You do a great
0: job and it's, it's awesome <laughs> to see you give them back. Absolutely. Coach, we really appreciate you giving back to us. Um, can you tell the audience, uh, the listeners, how to get a hold of you? Yeah, you can just, you know, email me my,
1: just go to com and go to our staff page. And my email address is on there. Um, my, my office, I think my office number is on there as well. Um, then I'd be happy to exchange, <coughs> excuse me, exchange cell phone numbers or or whatever they may need to sure. to help. And um, it's, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's great for people to continue to learn. And if if there's something that I could do to help, I think that's great. But I, I also encourage everybody just to, to keep it, keep it simple. It's, it's not a, it's not a complicated game. We're not sending rockets into space. We're just <laughs> we're trying to put peace, people in the right spot to be successful. And then, you know, obviously teach them life lessons along
0: the way. So it's um, don't overthink it. Absolutely, Coach. Very well said. Uh, now you can get back to your painting and start making some money out there painting somebody's house. So um, I appreciate you stepping up and helping us out, Coach. And uh, thanks again for being on the podcast.
1: Absolutely, Kevin. I certainly enjoyed it, and wish you the
0: wish you the best of luck. Hopefully, we all hopefully we all get to watch and coach some hoops this winter. Absolutely. Hopefully, you're back, and I mean, there in Montana, winning some more championships, Coach Lindsay. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.
2: Hey, coaches. This is Brad Hilligas, content producer at Huddle for the NBA, NCAA Division One, and high school basketball. I'm a big fan of Coach Furtado's podcast, Championship Vision, because it connects coaches around the country that want to continue learning and growing our beloved game. The X's and O's, coaching philosophy, teaching principles, they're all here. And that's a mission that we're working on at Huddle as well. More than 160,000 teams, including the best in the world, use Huddle to elevate their performance with video. But our collection of online tools is much more than that. Mobile desktop apps, smart cameras, video editing, data analytics software, the list goes on. But our goal is to help coaches like you teach the game in a modern way, whether that's connecting with your athletes, communicating your game plan, or looking to gain a competitive edge. And if you want to see how Huddle can help your program, visit Huddle.com. That's H-U-D-L.com to learn more. And, of course, keep listening to the Championship Vision Podcast to never stop learning. Hey, this is NBA skills coach Drew Hanlon of Pure Sweat Basketball, and you are listening to the Championship Vision Podcast.